0: Good evening. Good to be with you. Uh, My name's Jim Partridge. If you don't know me, I'm one of the elders. Wow. I'm not sure what to do here. Joseph, you didn't have any trouble, did you? What is it? If that keeps up, I'm just going to speak loudly, but uh, hopefully we're good. Well, if you have not had a greeting of Happy Pentecost... You have one now. Uh, hopefully, maybe they did that this morning at our Pentecost service. I was not able to, to join you this morning. I was up uh, preaching at the PCA Church up in uh, East Liverpool, Ohio. I bring you greetings from that church. That's actually where Rob Gray's father, Mac Gray, just uh, preached his last sermon last Sunday. He is now up with Rob and Aaron. Um, the Gray household up in Connecticut is is full And so uh, I was out there ministering the word today, but um, I do want to bring you um, this greeting of of happy Pentecost. You know, in our culture here in the church, uh, we don't necessarily follow the church calendar all that closely. Some branches of the church do. Uh, I was actually uh, talking, I think, with Sandy Snoke just last week, uh, and the Snokes were in Germany. And apparently if you lived in Germany, today you would be exchanging cards because Pentecost Sunday is a big deal in Germany. So um, we're commemorating, of course, the outpouring of the Spirit today that ignited the propagation of the gospel to the known world. Um, The first Pentecost was highlighted by the preaching of The Apostle Peter in Acts 2, I'm going to read a portion of that in just a moment. That's not our text for tonight, but I think you'll see the connection between Acts 2 and Psalm 130 that I'll be reading a little bit later. Peter's sermon highlighted um, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and it ended in dramatic fashion. So let me just read a portion from Acts 2, and as I do this, I have to show you the coolest picture that I got from a young girl today in uh, East Liverpool. This is her rendering of Peter preaching at Pentecost. Really cool. Great artistry. Okay, Acts 2. Listen to this word. I'm breaking into Peter's sermon near the end where he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then in verse 41, the great dramatic results. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Peter was preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins based on the work of Jesus Christ. How appropriate that we would tonight consider Psalm 130, one of the penitential psalms. Uh, that spotlights these very truths. And how appropriate that this psalm, one of the psalms of ascent, if you're aware of this little grouping of uh, psalms in the Psalter, these were thought to be road songs that were sung by Jewish pilgrims on their way up to the temple in Jerusalem. And one of those feasts, yes, the Feast of Pentecost, It's one of the three feasts that Jewish pilgrims were called to observe, and so this very psalm may well be one of the psalms sung by folks on the road as they prepared to worship at the Feast of Pentecost. So we're going back thousands of years. I love the ancient uh, fact of the Christian faith based on uh, our Jewish heritage as well. And this psalm contains some of the same themes that we just read from Acts 2, as you'll see in a moment. Peter was preaching to a mixed crowd of Jews from many different nations on a particular day, in a particular place, A.D. 30, in Jerusalem. I was reminded our pastor, Matt Kerber, uh, took a trip to Israel just back in March with his mom. And one of the images that he shared was... uh, People from all over the world at the Wailing Wall, a group from China, a group from Korea, all over the world, people are still streaming into Jerusalem. It's kind of the happening place, right? And in fact, in our recent news this past week, it was the happening place for, for protest. We live in a very trying and troubled world, don't we? And friends, as we consider this troubled world, as we consider this world full of sin and suffering, and as you think of your own particular circumstances, I'd like you to consider the psalm that we're just going to read in a moment and be encouraged by its central message. This ancient little psalm composed by a Jewish believer perhaps 3,000 years ago. My message to you from Psalm 130 is this There is a merciful and personal God who offers hope, steadfast love, and forgiveness for those who wait and trust Him to deal with their sin and their suffering and that of the world. Will you wait? Will you trust? Will you repent and believe in Him? Let me read our text, Psalm 130. And then I will pray and ask you to pray for me. This is God's word. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for this, your precious word. We thank you for these songs written so long ago that speak to our hearts even today. And I pray that your Holy Spirit, as it filled your people on that Pentecost day, would fill us now and illumine our hearts to understand this word. Father, please forgive my sin. Cause this word to be used for your purpose. We pray together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'd like us tonight to first of all just consider the message of this wonderful psalm and then think about some of the challenges that we actually have in believing it and then finally seek some application to our lives as perhaps 21st century pilgrims who have come to the temple, as it were. This psalm, if you look at it, breaks down quite easily into four stanzas. Uh, The first, verses 1 and 2, is a statement of confession and need. Verses 3 to 4, and we'll be coming back to these to to talk about them a little bit. Verses 3 and 4 is a statement of truth and confidence, Verses 5 and 6, a statement of dependence. And then verses 7 and 8, we have an exhortation, a testimony, and a promise. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 first. What I'd like you to see here, first of all, the psalmist is in the depths. There is urgency in these words. He uses the word cry. He uses an imperative verb in the Hebrew when he says, Oh Lord, hear my voice. Adonash Shema. The psalm begins in trouble. It begins in suffering. It's honest. One of the things I love about the word of God is its honesty. The depths are not really defined, but it's likely having to do with the psalmist's sin. We see the word iniquities twice in the psalm if you look through and it is a plea for mercy in verse 2. But I don't think it necessarily has to be just suffer, or the, the depths don't just have to be his own sin. It could be the sin of those sinning against him or the sin of living in a broken world. The depths can be many things. But the cool thing here in this psalm is that the psalmist immerses his suffering in the lord and he actually uses two words for god that you'll see here there's a little kind of a word play if you look in verses one and two you see lord in caps that's yahweh that's the covenant name of god the personal covenantal name of god and then "O oh lord in, in small caps is adonah uh, one of the words used to to denote the power of god so he is praying to both the personal and and the powerful God who is able to deliver. Let's go down to verses 3 and 4. Now we have not his cry for mercy, but his meditation. He stops, as it were, to think. And look at what he says. He he gives truth about this personal, this powerful God. If you should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? He's spotlighting here the absolute Moral perfection of this God, the holiness of God. What if he stopped here? What if the God that you and I serve were only holy? We would all be on the ground. No one would stand. That's the truth about God. But thanks be to God, we have one of the great buts of scripture in verse 4, do we not? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. God is not only totally holy, he is also merciful. And that should produce in us reverence and awe. Matthew Henry called the mercy of God his darling attribute. This reminds me of the fact that this is a theme throughout the Psalter, I was reminded as I was reading Psalm 130 of another psalm that I'm sure you're familiar with. I just want to read a portion of Psalm 103 because it's a beautiful explication again of both the holiness and justice of God and his mercy juxtaposed together. Psalm 103 in verse 8. Listen to this. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. One commentator said that verse 4 is really the key line in this entire poem because it points to reverence to God, for God, is central to living a transformed life in relationship to God. Let's move on to verses 5 and 6. So the psalmist has cried out to God in verses 1 to 2. He's now, he's meditated on God and the character of God in verses 3 and 4. And now we see his response to this holy, this merciful, this personal and powerful God. What's his response? His response is faith, but it's expressed in dependent waiting and hope. I want you to note here the relationship of God to his word in verse 5. He's waiting on his word and his word he hopes. And then we have the repetition that you see in verse 6. You may say, why does he have to say this twice more than the watchman for the morning? The psalmist is using this as a way to slow us down and get us to think. And brothers and sisters, I think we need to do that, don't we? so easy to pass over truths in the word. This is just a, a literary technique, I think, to have a slowdown and chew on the truth. I want to point out here in verse 5 that these verbs, I wait, my soul waits, uh, the word for hope, and also the verb up in verse 1 for cry. These are all in Hebrew. These are verbs that denote an ongoing activity, not a one-time momentary act. The psalmist deals with his sin and suffering, not occasionally, but on a regular basis. And I think he does that because he has a relationship with the covenant God. And as I say that, I reflect on my own relationship with God, and perhaps you will as, as well. Do you deal with your sin and your suffering Face to face with God in honesty on a daily basis. Let's move down to verse 7 and 8. Here we have the psalmist's exhortation, testimony, and promise. The psalmist here turns from addressing God or thinking to now addressing the corporate people of God. He says, Hope in Yahweh. It's another imperative. He uses the covenant name twice in verse 7 there. He's getting personal now. And why? Why should we hope in God? Look at the verse. Because of the character of God. This God that we know is steadfast love and with him is plenteous redemption. Wherever you see steadfast love in the Old Testament, you can think of that beautiful Hebrew concept, hesed, Hesed love, commitment love, love that is not waxing and waning with our feelings. It's God's one-way commitment love offered in the gospel. And then the psalm ends with an amazing promise. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Brothers and sisters, you are Israel. The church is Israel. So this is a word to the corporate people of God, a promise that he is going to get this done. There will be a day when all of our iniquities will be dealt with, as Joseph mentioned before. It's the new heavens and the new earth, and that's what we are looking for. So I just wanted to point out these uh, wonderful truths from the scripture, from Psalm 130, but I think now I need to address some problems that I have as I read this psalm, and perhaps you have as well. Three problems I'd like to deal with tonight. Number one is, we don't acknowledge sin and suffering in our world. Much less confess it to God, much less confess it to others, much less repent of it. I'd suggest that these are really foreign concepts in our culture of comfort, our culture of superficiality, and our culture of cynicism. I had a meeting yesterday of several brothers from the church, and we were talking, we were talking about uh, the whole concept of repentance. And we all confess together that it's few and far between the times when we specifically confess our sins to God or to other people. It's just not a regular part of our Christian lives. And that's something I want to repent of. Secondly, I don't know about you, but I find it hard to wait for anything. I can't wait for a traffic light, much less wait for the Lord to deal with my sin or deal with the problems of the world. I think one way that you could illustrate this is the the expectations that have been raised with technology. Um, as I thought about this, um, I, I chuckled to think back to the day when, uh, when I met Tracy. Uh, Tracy was still corresponding with her mother, who was in Africa, uh, via snail mail. They had written letters for years. When she was in boarding school, she was 1,500 miles away from her parents. They wrote regularly. And, of course, what happened in those days? You know, we did used to write letters. Did you used to write letters? I used to write letters. Maybe some of you have never written a letter. But you used to write letters and you'd send them and they would cross in the mail. And so the the information would be old and you'd be frustrated and you'd have to write another letter to update or whatever. Well, I think somewhere around 1986, email came on the scene and we could email her parents in Kenya and that was really cool. Up-to-date information. Well, then came Skype. And when my daughter Carolyn was in Cameroon several years ago, we could not only talk to her, we could see her until the connection went down. And I don't know about you, but I got stinking mad every time that connection went down. I was frustrated. My expectations had been raised, and the technology didn't work. We can't wait for anything. That's why we have a problem with the psalm, because it's all about waiting and hoping. And speaking of hope, I don't think we do hope very well as a culture as well. I do cynicism really well. I don't do hope well. Can I challenge us, friends, from this beautiful psalm with three applications that I'd like to uh, suggest to you? Concepts that you've heard, but let me try to drive them home. Number one, confession is good for the soul, someone said. The psalmist comes to God, first of all, out of the depths. He's honest before God. He confesses his sin. And you know, the scriptures tell us that this God cares for you. He cares for you. Why won't we come to him? We need to confess our sins to one another. James tells us that. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Secondly, I think meditation is another lost art in our culture. And we do well to chew on the truths of God. Meditate on his mercy toward you. Meditate on the fact that God did not, in his holiness, he could have just marked our iniquities. And that would have been the end of the day. But no, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Meditate on his mercy toward you. One person defined mercy as not receiving what we deserve and grace as receiving what we do not deserve. This psalm is all about the mercy and grace of God and we do well to meditate on it. And finally, I'd like to suggest a lifestyle check for us all. Are you likely to be waiting and hoping in faith or manipulating and frantically doing life out of a posture of cynicism? It's a searching question for my own heart, and I offer it for you as well. This psalm calls us to wait and hope in the Lord and in his word For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I'd like to end uh, this time tonight by going back to uh, that prophet Micah, that wonderful word that we had as our assurance of pardon. Going to read one verse beyond what we did, but hear this word as we close and prepare for the Lord's Supper. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you were sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Please pray with me.